2: Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com.
1: And welcome to Overnight America. I'm looking at some of the different weather reports on social media. I saw Steve Templeton over at KMOV posting a video from their affiliate in Kansas City. And the affiliate in Kansas City makes it look like there was some funnel clouds up in the air. Wow, look at that. And that's from KCTV5 News, the CBS affiliate over in Kansas City. No real uh, word or confirmation that anything of touchdown, but just scary nonetheless. And we had that one storm move through pretty much out of the system now moving through Illinois. So if you're to the uh, Metro East, you're probably seeing it flush out now or maybe just a little bit of leftover remnants uh, hitting that. But if you're far to the West, like Columbia, you're starting to see those storms come through. Just keeping an eye on that just in case it comes through welcome to the show it's always good to have you on a monday that means our political historian rich Rabino, is going to come on and we'll talk about um irish in america which is kind of interesting with um saint patrick's day this week there's some very notable stories um the battle between irish democrats and yankee republicans the history of that uh many other things we'll get to uh on the later in the show too we're going to talk to linda gordon is the author of The Second Coming of the KKK, the mainstream movement of the middle class in the 1920s, even in places like Illinois. So we're going to spend most of the hour next hour talking about the uh, 1920s and the second rise of the KKK. Very fascinating history lesson there. We'll also talk to the National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, Todd Benzman, about the problem we're having in the southern border. It is pretty urgent. It is pretty bad. Who's to blame here, really? Pelosi blames Trump. McCarthy blames the uh, Biden administration. Really, is there a fault in something like that? Lots uh, to get to tonight on the show. I wanted to point out just a few things before we get to Richard Bino in a moment. Fumbled vaccine rollout. St. Louis County leader blasts state's vaccination plans. Missouri teachers and other school workers, and that's at KMOX.com, are uh, still upset. You know, the fumbled vaccine rollout. Where did the vaccines go? Where are they? You know, why aren't they hitting the right areas? Why were they being distributed in a weird way? And there was this little back and forth for a moment there. You had Dr. Garza say, hey, we're not seeing the right proportion of the vaccine hitting our area. Governor Parson says, "Uh, yes, you are. No, uh uh-uh. And then later he had to backtrack and say, well, maybe some of these smaller areas that are getting these large numbers we're in error, so we got to make sure this is corrected. And when you try to rush anything, that's kind of what happens. I, the just trying to get this sort of thing out, and I know it's frustrating for a lot of people because these sign-up lists, these wait lines, aren't necessarily putting the right people forward. We saw it here in St. Louis with one of the first mass vaccination sites where you'd have the vulnerable population; those that would be on the should be on the top of the list, that should be getting the calls, but they weren't necessarily getting the calls. Some of them weren't. Others that shouldn't actually be in the queue were the ones getting calls some of the time. And it was a mess. And it's like that all over the place. It's just a mess. It's not just a St. Louis thing. It's a mess. It's not a Missouri. It's a mess. Everyone's having problems with it right now. So trying to figure this sort of thing out, if anything, is just trying to find the best ways to fight this virus. And Dr. Fauci, just a reminder in moving the goalpost yet again.
0: We should not get so fixated On this elusive number of herd
1: immunity, we should just be concerned about getting as many people vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can. All right. So the goal is to get as many people vaccinated as fast as you possibly can. And that's okay. That's the goal now. Just to try to do exactly that. But how many times have we heard the herd uh, immunity? How many times have we heard that, oh, you know, even if you have the vaccine, you should still stay at home? Or how many times have we heard, you know, wear two masks, even if you have the vaccine or this or that or this or that? So if if the idea is to try to get as many as you can, but then you're still trying to hedge your bets for the summer, you have the Biden administration coming out and saying that by the end of May, everyone's going to be in line. We're going to have everything up and running and everyone's going to be vaccinated and this or that. So it's looking good for the summer. It's all of these things that you hear. And then they come back out and say, well, actually, you should probably still wear the mask and you probably won't be able to see too many people 4th of July. But you might be able to see some people because the government will give you permission as if you're going to listen to them anyway. And over in Illinois, this other story at KMOX.com, Southern Illinois coroner claims states COVID death totals are inaccurately inflated, which is one of the big problems that we're having with COVID. Uh, Of course, there is the treatment of COVID, which we're trying to still figure out the best way to treat. We're still trying to figure out the best way to vaccinate because there's multiple options and distribution of those vaccinations. We're still trying to figure out the best way to keep people safe in the regulations that or at least I should say guidelines for that sort of thing. But the thing we don't talk about much is the accurate reporting of COVID because we've had so many issues with inaccurately reporting these things. We're not bad like, oh, I don't know, New York, where Governor Cuomo was just flat out uh, telling, uh, uh, inaccurately reporting numbers, giving problems with that, and now, rightfully so, getting called out. But all of the other sexual harassment allegations seem to be overshadowing the problems that they had when it came to reporting the nursing homes and the vulnerable populations and the decisions that were made and why they were made and the motivations for why they were made. I think that even if we continue to look at these numbers and how we handle in uh, covid, we got to remember that we have to go back and revise to make sure we have the most accurate numbers of what actually happened. I think that's going to be very important when we talk about comorbidities in the problems that some people had because of other underlining issues. We need to better document these things to understand this strain and understand why it hit so hard for certain people, because if we don't understand, we've learned nothing. And that's part of the problem. We can just say, we'll put a shot in everyone's arm and it'll all be good. And maybe you'll be able to see a one person on Fourth of July or whatever they're trying to dangle in front of you and just use it as another opportunity to pass another COVID bill later in the year. We don't want that. We want to actually understand this sort of thing. And for all the yelling and screaming about following the science, then one of your highest priorities should be to go back and make sure. We are studying this the way it should be studied. I just don't feel like we put that much emphasis on it right now. Maybe it's just we're too close to it. It goes back to World War II. When we go back and look at some of the record keeping of our soldiers in World War II, and they talk to the generals and they'd say, how come you didn't keep better records? And They said, we were too busy trying to save the world, man. <laughs> trying to keep paperwork up to date. We were we we're a little busy. So. I understand that it's, we're a little busy. As a country, as a nation, as a, a world, we're pretty busy. But let's just keep in mind, we have to go back and fix these things. Just like what they're pointing out in Illinois, it's a valid concern there, too. All right, Our friend Rich Rabino, author of American Politics on the Rocks. A couple of things to talk to him, some political history. Always a great catch-up with him. He'll come up next on Overnight America KMOX.
2: Get home fast and informed. Total Information PM starts weekdays at 4 on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX and KMOX.com.
1: He is the author of American Politics on the Rocks, Rich Rubino. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Ryan. How's that new book of yours coming along? It's coming. It's coming along. It's the uh, the, uh, Byzantine
0: editing process I'm going through right now, but it should be out uh, relatively soon.
1: Line by line, the Rubino perfection is what's going on. Is that process so Clinton, where you make line sense by open. line,
0: dime by dime?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to um, talk to you about a few things. One of the interesting things is that this week is uh, a pretty big week. It's uh, St. Patrick's Day week. I know a lot of people are looking forward to getting their refund and stimulus checks. Other people are wondering, you know, how they might be celebrating this year if the, they do indeed celebrate. I decided to go online, and I was curious which politicians had Irish descent. There's a lot. And going back through the line, even going back to the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and you reminded me um, that there was this battle that went on, Irish Democrats and Yankee Republicans. That was a feud and a half.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was very different than kind of the way we see politics t- currently but basically, you had kind of flinty, Yankee-type Republicans, a lot of whom go all the way back literally to the Mayflower, or a little bit right after that, you know, members of the Mayflower Society, that type. And they're usually Republicans. They were usually generally relatively liberal on social issues. Fiscally, they were more conservative. Um, and then there were also the Catholic Democrats were kind of the opposite in many respects. They came o- When they came over, they brought their their, their brand of politics, which was generally Fiscally, relatively liberal, but socially, it was relatively conservative. I guess you could, when I say liberal, I'm saying that more from a context of the time. In many respects, actually, somewhere more moderate or conservative. If it's interesting, there was kind of an inflection point, and that came in 1928, when the Democrats nominated Al Smith, who was the first Catholic to be nominated as the nominee of a major party. Al Smith is, was, the, was the governor of New York at the time, outgoing governor, and he garnered the nomination, and that year he actually, that was the first time some some southern Democrats questioned their kind of loyalty to the party. That's where the term yellow dog Democrat came from, and essentially people would say, I'll vote for a Democrat even if it's a yellow dog. There were some questions among some Southerners whether they could actually support an Irish Catholic uh, for president. Some actually did, some actually didn't. Um, and actually there's a term called Al Smith Democrat that kind of continued continued after that which was essentially somebody who was Catholic and a Democrat, um, and, but they were also somewhat more conservative. And if you look at what happened right after, when the new—so Al so Smith lost in 1928, lost very convincingly to Herbert Hoover. Then four years later, Franklin Roosevelt, the man who had succeeded him as governor of New York, defeated Al Smith for the nomination. They ran against each other in 1928—in 1932, rather. When Roosevelt became president, Al Smith broke off with uh, with Franklin Roosevelt, in part because of the New Deal, he said that it it basically pit class, quote class against class, and he actually supported Alv Landon, who ran for president in 1936 and only won Maine and Vermont that year. 1940, he supported Wendell Wilkie, who kind of broke off. But um, that, so that's kind of where i mean you know, the process essentially came from. Essentially, you had a, essentially there are a lot of somewhat even today there were even in places like Massachusetts, for example, where you wouldn't expect it. In some of the urban areas, there are um, a lot of Democrats who are actually pretty socially conservative, but on fiscal issues are somewhat more moderate or liberal. And a lot of them are Democrats more or less because of ancestry; of they're Democrats, even though in some respects they actually think more conservatively. On the other side of that, you have some Republicans who go back gener- who go back generations who can be very liberal folks, like you know Bill Weld, for example, very socially liberal uh, former governor of Massachusetts. Um, but, you know, certainly goes back at like the Chafee's in Rhode Island, for example, Lincoln Chafee and John Chafee, um, Jim Jeffords in Vermont. You know, these are people whose families go way back, but they are Republicans partly because of their ancestral uh, uh, their ancestral uh, homeland.
1: Yeah. So John F. Kennedy was of Irish descent, at least um, I don't know what percentage or whatever it would be. But and I think about the Catholic angle, because you mentioned uh, that was something that today, by any standard, wouldn't be all that different, but that was something unique to see a president in the White House who was a Catholic. Times have really changed. Did he just make it cool? Did he make it acceptable? And did that turn the tide? Or was it just that everything else culturally was changing at that time? Yeah,
0: well, I think a lot of that actually changed in the West Virginia primary. So basically what what, what John, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy had to do in 1960 is he had to prove to voters that Democratic voters that he could garner support in a state that was 95% Protestant. So at the time, primaries were kind of voluntary almost. A lot of candidates that year, Lyndon Johnson, and Stu Symington, didn't actually announce till around the time of the convention. But essentially, you had John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey as the only major candidates in West Virginia. So John F. Kennedy had to prove that he was um, had to prove that a Catholic could win in a state as Protestant as West Virginia. They actually did a lot of dirty tricks to do that. One of the things they did is Robert Kennedy, um, working for John F. Kennedy, actually hired. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jr., of course, the Roosevelt family was extremely popular in the state of West Virginia, to basically barnstorm West Virginia saying that Hubert Humphrey was a draft dodger because he did not serve in World War II. In actuality, Hubert, Hubert Humphrey had actually tried to serve. Actually, went for his medical exam, but they wouldn't accept him in part because he had a hernia. So he went around. and He kind of started all a started lot the, of these rumors. He also, in many respects, tried to pay off a lot of um, precinct captains, you know, to really support the Kennedy campaign. But it got the message out that Kennedy, that a Catholic could win in West Virginia. So, Demo- so the Democratic Party gave him their nod for the nomination, and then of course he became, um, you know, he of course was elected president. And ever since then. You know the Catholic um, stigma has very much been liquidated. It's kind of like, you know, usually when something happens once, um, after a while, after a while, it's no longer a political issue. Mm-hmm. That another example would be the the case of divorce. You know, when Nelson Rockefeller ran for the Republican nomination in 1964, he was absolutely pilloried. Um, he lost the California primary in in part because his second wife was having a child with him, and it reminded people that his first wife. Um, that his first wife, that his second wife, rather, Happy Rockefeller had abandoned her husband to essentially marry Nelson Rockefeller, so it became a huge issue. Then, but then when Ronald Reagan became president, he had been divorced once; he had been married to Jane Wyman. Then it became a virtual non-issue. And then you had folks like Bob Dole, John Kerry, uh, John McCain, who had also been divorced, and their divorce was virtually non-issue during the campaign. So I think John F. Kennedy kind of got rid of. That sting much to the point that when John Kerry, who is also a Catholic, and Joe Biden, who was a Catholic, were running for president, the fact that they were Catholic was a virtual non-issue.
1: You know, talking about the Kennedys real quick and joining us is Rich Rubino, author of American Politics on the Rocks and dot geekcom Whenever you see a picture of President Biden inside of the White House behind him, there's that Robert Kennedy bust. I'm curious his connection between the two. Why did they have a, a close relationship? Did they know each other?
0: I don't I not I can't no uh, well, Robert Kennedy would have died in 19- over. No, yeah. Robert Kennedy would have died in 1968 and Joe Biden would have assumed his Senate seat in 1973 so and he was only 30 years old at the time so I doubt yeah. that they ever would have met each other.
1: Right, that would have uh, been a stretch or maybe it's one of those stories where You always hear these type of urban legends where he ran up and he was a kid and he ran up and he said, oh, I really admire you. And then he grows up. And next thing you know, he's the next big thing. It's always one of those deals. Or they end up writing a letter to someone they idolize. And then later you find out they wrote a letter and the person still had it. Um, But that uh, is there. And I know that each president has their own way of decorating the White House and the Oval Office in the way that they like. Is there anything else you've noticed in Joe Biden's Oval Office that stands out?
0: Well, I was just going to say another thing would have been the famous meeting with Bill Clinton when he was part of uh, Boy State, when he represented Arkansas in Boy State, and he met John F. Kennedy. And then mm-hmm. when he ran for president in 1992, his staff scoured the uh, archives. This was before you know the internet really took off in the in the um, in at the John F. Kennedy Library, and actually found the video where Bill Clinton was you know in a sense he shook the hand of John F. Kennedy, and then he used it in The Man from Hope, the video that kind of introduced himself at the convention in New York that year. To the American people, but that's kind of a very kind of interesting how they kind of intersected. Another would be Theodore Roosevelt when Lincoln, when Abraham Lincoln's um, brigade, when, it, when Abraham Lincoln, there was a parade in his in his honor for his, you know, after he had died, and it's actually a picture you can see of Theodore Roosevelt. And I guess if you really use a microscope, you can see him sitting in, um, looking out at the looking out the window in New York, seeing the casket go by with Abraham Lincoln. So that's kind of where history kind of I guess intersects, but. In terms of um in terms of what's behind Joe Biden, that type of thing, I haven't really noticed anything um all that different other than the fact that obviously the family photographs are a little bit different. <laughs> he doesn't really have hope... Donald Trump photographs behind him.
1: <laughs> I really hope that when they build a Donald Trump presidential library, they put up the photo of all the Republican presidents playing poker. That was just <laughs> yes, so yes, perfect. Yes, yes. <laughs> the infamous photo. In fact, I should probably get a copy of that hanging up on the wall because it would just go so well in the studio. It's just such a weird juxtaposition type of photograph to have inside the White House and Oval Office. But at the same time, it's just it's like cool because it's out of place. I kind of like it myself. Yep.
0: And then you have the other kind of the other presidents, kind of like Coolidge and all kind of looking and kind of watching the whole process.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Keeping an eye out. I get it. You know, I do want to talk to you a little bit about the stimulus package and some of the different votes that may catch your eye. We might have to save that till after the break, mostly for the sake of time. But if people wanted to find you online, what's a good spot for them to go?
0: Yep. Just go to www.polita-geek.com or go to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino, P-O-L, or of course go to Facebook and type in Rich and then Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O. Perfect.
1: Perfect. I've been looking online. There's a whole Wikipedia page, list of American politicians of Irish descent. And I thought, OK, here are some notables. There's a ton I didn't realize goes all the way back to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it's pretty Im- remarkable, all things considered, because you, yeah, you think oh, about absolutely. going all the way back then. I mean, there was so much um, there was a time when there was so much discrimination against immigrants and Irish immigrants and Italians and all of the you think about some of them that came over here. It's amazing to think that they were even involved in the signing of the Declaration. That's wonderful.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, there was one, um, and he actually, uh, Charles Carroll, and he was actually also the longest, uh, he was, I believe, the last surviving member of those who had actually signed uh, the Declaration of Independence. And he was, of course, the only Catholic as well. So those are kind of, he's also one of the first senators uh, from Maryland. Um, that's, kind of one, that's kind of his, um, that, that's, of course, his imprimatur on history. But it's interesting, you talk about the kind of anti Irish, anti immigrant vote at the time. There was actually a political party called the Know Nothing Party. It's called the Nona, It was really called the American Party, but they called the Know-Nothing Party because they were asked by the press if they had had a meeting to discuss the introduction of a party, and they said, Oh, we know nothing, so in history it's known <laughs> as the Know-Nothing Party. And it was actually quite popular. There was one year where in Massachusetts it controlled the entire congressional delegation, Governor Gardner, uh, some of the executives, and it controlled um, most of the state legislature. And in 1856, Millard Fillmore... Who had let, who had been who had been outed, ousted, ousted in eighteen fifty two uh, by Franklin Pierce left the Democratic Party and actually was the nominee of the know Nothing party that year and they actually won the state of Maryland that year that was the only the first time that was the only state they won that year but it 's interesting because Fillmore, in any respect was actually out of the country at the time and didn 't really want the nomination, but he did accept it and there was kind of an it was an interesting because many respects the know nothing party was very anti slavery but they were also very uh, anti-Irish immigrant, somewhat nativist Mm -hmm. at the time. So there was certainly a legacy, and there certainly was a lot of pullback from the Irish, especially a lot of the Irish that came over, for example, during the potato famine.
1: Wow. Yeah. So we'll have to talk about a few things right after the break, because there is an interesting vote that happened during the stimulus package crossing over, and that may have to do with some political repercussions in Maybe advantages that they could use in the future, but we'll do that right after the break. We'll take a look at your weather and more with Rich Rubino next on Overnight America KMOX.
2: Tune in is the
1: audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my word
0: Cardinals spring training is underway in Jupiter, Florida. And King of OX's Mike Claiborne is covering
2: it all. Hear his daily reports, mornings and afternoons, and on Cardinals Open Live. Sponsored in part by Norm's Bargain Barn and Wilkie Windows. I'm your voice in the St. Louis Cardinals, King of OX.
1: He's Rich Rabino, author of American Politics on the Rocks, Polita-Geek.com. Rich, thanks for coming on again to Overnight America.
0: Oh, you're quite welcome.
1: You know, kind of playing off what we were talking about before the break, I have a guest in the next hour. She is a historian, and I think she's a professor at NYU. Her name's Linda Gordon, and she talks about the second coming of the KKK in the 1920s. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, anti irish sediment, things like that. The, the KKK of the 1800s and how we normally think about them much different than when in the 1900s and what their causes were. So it kind of plays off with some of the things that we mentioned in the last segment. I thought I would mention that to our audience listening now that next hour, there'll be a real interesting conversation on that. We,
0: but I, just, I, do, I just say yeah. that, though, it's interesting. Back in 1924, there was a resolution at the Democratic National Convention to condemn the KKK And Al Smith was one of the people – this is – Al Smith had run in 24 as well. He did not win the nomination that year. John W. Davis did, but it was a huge issue within the Democratic Party. Do you condemn it? Do you not condemn it? Um, But it was a very close vote, and ultimately they uh, voted to condemn it. But it was obviously a very controversial issue at the time.
1: Because I asked her if she could estimate how many members did they have at any given time in the 1920s, and she said – Uh, estimate is between three and five million there's a lot of people a part of the organization then Um, okay i do want to ask you about the recent stimulus package vote because there was one democratic representative who did not vote for it which pretty much went down party lines for the most part and i wanted to ask you about that one representative in maine and why they decided not to vote for it
0: yeah it's fascinating so literally one member in terms of so in the house and the senate It was literally every Republican voted against it. Every Republican, every Democrat voted for it, including Joe Manchin. So it was literally completely party lines with one exception, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that one exception was Jared Golden of Maine. And he's kind of he's an he's interesting. He's also the only Democrat who voted against the legislation for background checks. Last year, he did, he, was, he did the same. It was only him and Colin Peterson from Minnesota. Colin Peterson represented a district in Minnesota that went for 30 points by, for Donald Trump last time around. He was chairman of the Agriculture Committee. He ended up losing. So it's, it's interesting that he was the only Democrat that did that. He represents a district that Donald Trump won. It's one of, there's only 4, 4% of congressional districts that actually have split-ticket voting, meaning that they elected somebody different from the United States House of Representatives to, their pre, to the president, And Golden is one of those rare commodities. He has a district. You may have seen um, on the night of election, because Maine and Nebraska award their electoral votes, they award two electoral votes to whoever wins the state. In this case, it was Joe Biden. Then they award the other two electoral votes to whoever wins the congressional district. There's the first Mm -hmm. congressional district, Shelley Pingree's district, which is quite Democrat, that went for Joe Biden. Then the other district. The second congressional district is actually the second most rural congressional district in the country, and it 's also the largest congressional district east of the mississippi it 's absolutely huge. It goes from down south. If you look at a map of maine you don 't think of Maine is this big, but it goes all the way up to heuristic county um, and it 's a very rural congressional district, so obviously his vote for um, his vote against background checks could potentially benefit him there. But he's somebody who's been vulnerable. He just was elected the first time. And the first time he was elected was because of, they have um, ranked choice voting. The second time, he barely got reelected. And he really is kind of a maverick um, to the De- in the Democratic Party. In part, he probably will make the argument. His basic argument, he says that it was not narrowly tailored and that some money had already been given out. And he did not think that, it should, that essentially the money should go to everybody. So that's kind of the argument that he's making. But still, he now has a primary challenger. Um, in Maine, and you know, obviously, if Democratic primary, especially in the congressional district like Maine, where there aren't quite a lot of Democrats in that district, specifically as you go up further up rural, there's a possibility he could actually lose. In which case, the primary opponent would likely lose in the general election. But it's just very interesting that he chose to make the, to kind of make his stand on something that's so popular, even with Republicans. Um, the stimulus package. He chose to vote against that. I can see why he would choose to vote against the background checks, even though they're generally popular. He wanted to be seen as kind of one of the last surviving um, pro-gun Democrats. But it's very interesting because he's always going to go down in history as kind of the one person um, who voted against, who voted, who voted differently than his party on this. And certainly, I will say. If he wants re-election next time around, assuming he wins the primary in the general election, it'll be very hard for his Republican opponent to say, "You know, you're somehow you're a handmaiden, you're um, you know, you're a um, proxy of Nancy Pelosi." He says, "Look, I'm the only Democrat who voted against in the entire House of Representatives on both of these measures."
1: Making a name for himself. Uh, I also wanted to mention the Ides of March, which oh yes, I know the term. And I always have to look it up because I always forget what it means, honestly. I just, I kind of get the gist of it. And it's one of those things that you don't think about. You think about it one day of the year, and then it comes and pops back up and probably you're thinking about it sleepy because of the whole like Dave daylight saving time over the weekend. So you're not already, you're already thinking a little loopy to begin with. And then all of a <laughs> sudden we throw that on you. So uh, the political backstabbing, I think when we think of that, we always go back to Caesar and, you know, getting ambushed and, you know, stabbed in that sense. And you see the different memes pop up online. It always has to do with that. So I wanted to talk to you about some political backstabbing and things that may come to mind with, and, in uh, the spirit of Ides of March.
0: I'm actually very impressed you said Daylight Saving Time, because that's the correct Uh, pronunciation. Almost everywhere else I hear Daylight
1: savings Time. (laughs) It should be acceptable both ways. There shouldn't really be a controversy. It should be allowed (laughs) to just be said with the S.
0: It's um, kind of like the period after Harry S. Truman. It's just going to be one of those <laughs> ongoing perpetual. <laughs> um, yeah, a few examples come to mind of a political backstabbing. And once again, for some reason, we're talking a lot about Al Smith today. But So Al Smith is interesting. So Al Smith was governor of New York, and in 1924, when he ran for president that year, Franklin D. Roosevelt actually delivered the speech nominating him at the Democratic National Convention, which we talked about earlier, so it's all coming full circle, um, for president, Al Smith landed up losing to uh, the former ambassador of to the kingdom named John W. Davis. But that year also, when Al Smith lost, he went back to running for governor of New York. And his opponent that year was, his, was the cousin of the Franklin Roosevelt and the son of Theodore Roosevelt, the Republican Theodore Roosevelt Jr. And Franklin hmm. Roosevelt, in, a, in, a, in, a, in support of party loyalty, still supported Smith over Franklin Delano Roosevelt, over uh, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. that year for government of New York. Al Smith ends up winning. Once Franklin Roosevelt becomes president in 1933, um, he institutes a new deal. Al Smith was never really a New Deal Democrat. He talked about this whole class-against-class issue, and he became very anti-Roosevelt and campaigned. He went against the trend in 1936 when the, Demo- when the Democratic Party pretty much had just about uniform rank-and-file support for Franklin Roosevelt. Al Smith goes out, and he supports Alf Landon for president, talking about how bad the New Deal was. Um, And then in 1940, he supported Wendell Wilkie as well. So that's certainly an example, I guess, of um, political backstabbing, because Franklin Roosevelt had obviously put himself out of the line by supporting him over his own cousin. But here's Here's another example. Oh, go ahead. Remember Gary Condit? Uh, Yes. 2001, the summer of Gary Condit. Well, 2000, and so Kerry Condit, they called it Condit Country. He'd always been very popular in the Modesto, California area, the Central Valley of California. But then, of course, there ended up the whole issue um, with Chandra Levy, and he became, you know, absolutely, just absolutely enveloped um, the airwaves just about everywhere that year. And then the next year, he's up for re-election. And, of course, now he's actually electorally vulnerable. So what's interesting is a very close ally and the person who was his mentor, Dennis, I mean, Charles, Kerry Condon was a mentor of Dennis Cardoza. Cardoza. Cardoza, a state assemblyman, was actually his chief of staff. Cardoza comes and actually runs against Gary Condit in the Democratic primary that year. He lands up defeating him. And um, at the time, you know, Chad, Chad Condon, who was Gary Condon's uh, son, said basically uh, Dennis backstabbed Gary he took advantage of a, of a tragedy he saw an important to win an election and he did it so that's kind of one example another example of backstabbing in the Al Smith uh, tradition I guess
1: so I wanted to go back to uh, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. because you never hear about Jr. so if let's say you could be born into one presidential <laughs> family which presidential family would that be?
0: I think genetically, James Garfield's family, absolutely. This is a guy who could literally, you know, he, he was president of a college, he was somebody who could literally write Latin in one hand, Greek in another hand, he could speak, you know, he, he was a polyglot, he would literally campaign with German audiences speaking German. Probably the smartest president, I think, that we probably ever had, and I think just to have, you know, those genetics, um, you know, he also actually had, um, he had a son who actually became president of, I believe it was William College, Williams College as well, so um Actually, he, has, he, had, he had very um, good genetics.
1: I was going to say, wouldn't you want to pick one that wasn't all that great? Because then you're not always going to be compared. You could probably <laughs> soar even higher with the opportunities. And as opposed to everyone saying, oh, why can't you be more like your dad? Then in other ways, they could say, oh, wow, you really took the family legacy and built on it. And you became your own person. And see, you always live under the shadow of a popular president.
0: I never yeah never I never thought of that. I guess if you were the son of Andrew Johnson, um you'd probably be looked upon, you know, when you actually came up and you um achieved something great. I guess you could be looked at and say, you know, I've achieved essentially the opposite of kind of what my father cuz obviously someone like Andrew Johnson is usually viewed as probably one of the one of the worst presidents um in American history. I guess the same thing with someone like James Buchanan, although I think James Buchanan had pretty generally good genetics as well. So I guess hmm. it's kind of you know it's it's all cross purposes, but yeah, that's a good point. I, mean, I did not even think I did not even think of that.
1: Well, um, is Theodore Roosevelt Jr. in your new book that you're putting together?
0: Uh, I believe here there will be a reference to him, and it's probably uh, a reference to he. he another, I think there was a reference in my last book, and it's all that a reference to the fact that uh, Franklin Roosevelt supported in New York Al Smith, the fellow Democrat, over. Franklin Roosevelt's uh, son, running, and, of course, both Franklin Roosevelt and Theodore Roosevelt both served as assistant secretaries of the Navy. They both served in the state legislature. Um, Franklin Roosevelt was a state senator. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was a state uh, representative. And they both ended up serving as governors of New York. And then they used Governors of New York as a launching pad to the presidency. In Franklin Delano Roosevelt's case, he went directly to the presidency. In Theodore Roosevelt's case, he went from Governor of New York to Vice President and then to presidency.
1: Just like that. Make it sound so easy. Oh, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Five easy steps.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. That's what you do. You run for, I mean, theoretically, you run for something like, you know, you start off, you run for, you know, cemetery commission or school committee, then you run for state rep. Then you run for lieutenant governor. The only person who's actually done it probably the way, probably this kind of textbook way was probably Calvin Coolidge. Um, You know, he started off at the very local level. Then he becomes a state representative, state senator. Then he becomes lieutenant governor. Then he becomes a governor. Then he becomes vice president. And then he becomes president. And then he retires. So he did it kind of that very textbook way of
1: doing it. The textbook way. Um, By the way, if people wanted to find you online and some of the things you're doing, where can they look?
0: Yep, just go to www.polita-geek.com or find me on Facebook at Rich Last Name Rubino R-U-B-I-N-O, or just go to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino P-O-L.
1: Perfect, and I very much enjoy our conversations on Monday, and always a unique perspective looking at what's going on today and how it played out historically. Rich Rubino, thank you for coming on to Overnight America.
0: Yes, and I know all the other guests talk about Millard Fillmore as well, so I wanted to—I didn't want you know—I didn't want to be unique on that.
1: All the time. See, producer Mike says, more
0: Millard Fillmore.
1: <laughs> more Fillmore again. All the time. You can
0: All do a whole time. show on it tomorrow, maybe. Maybe you can do a whole show, just <laughs> cut out for, cut out you know the entire show just for Millard Fillmore discussions. Stop
1: it! <laughs> Rich Ruffino, thanks again for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. Okay, tomorrow, all Fillmore uh, talk. It's Overnight America KMOX.
2: Now back to Overnight
1: America on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. MichaelsFlooringOutlet.com. Thanks again for hanging out with us on Overnight America. The Ides of much which is something that you may have heard, but there's a lot of things that have happened on this day, as Kevin Klein points out in one of his latest Whole Nother Stories. It was on
2: March 15th, of course, that Julius Caesar was assassinated. (laughs) Stabbed to death in a public meeting of the Roman Senate. As many as 60 people were in on that plot. He was caught out in the open with just a, a toga on, and it was not a Kevlar toga. This event alone is reason enough to beware the Ides of March, but there are many other examples. A big cyclone hit the Pacific island of Samoa in 1889, killing 147 people. And on March 15th, in 1917, Russian Tsar Nicholas got a bad visit.
1: I'm here, Your Majesty, at the request of the delegates of the Duma.
2: A very stern general telling Tsar Nicholas it was time to abdicate the throne.
0: ...and the express command of General Alexiev... And you
2: know how that ended up. On March 15th, in 1939, Adolf Hitler took Czechoslovakia. Through the snow, the legions of occupation march into Czechoslovakia. This rapid stroke which has outraged all freedom-loving nations of the world... And in 1941, on the Ides of March, there was a deadly blizzard in the Great Plains. 151 people died when the sudden snowstorm hit. North Dakota and Minnesota, temperatures plummeted 20 degrees in 15 minutes, and this was before Doppler radar. In 1952, it was the day that they marked World Rainfall Record Day. 73 inches of rain fell in 24 hours on the Indian Ocean island of Reunion. 73 inches. And then in 1971, on March 15th, something bad happened to Ed Sullivan. Tonight, live from the Las Vegas desert and Stardust, the Ed Sullivan Show. We all know how the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan years earlier, but the show had gone downhill.
0: I suppose in the 18-year history of our show, we've never had any star who's won such affectionate acceptance as our little Italian mouse, Topo Gigio.
2: He was introducing a puppet. So CBS canceled the Ed Sullivan show on March 15th, 1971. Bad things happen to people throughout history on any given day, but it may be a good day to be careful. Beware the Ides of March. With a whole nother story, I'm Kevin (laughs) Stupid!
1: You must beware. Way to go, Kevin Klein. another great commentary from him. I wanted to point this out, and this actually deserves more time than what I'm going to give it here because we only have about uh, a minute and a half before we take a break for the news. But the Hill wrote this up. Washington Post adds lengthy correction to report on Trump call with Georgia elections investigator. How many times have you heard this? Oh, look at him, Donald Trump, terrible, criminal, blah, 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 blah. Washington Post had to correct what they looked at as a bombshell report from earlier in the year in January when they said that then-President Trump told Georgia's top election investigators during a phone call to, quote, find the fraud, end quote, and that they would be a, quote, national hero, end quote, if they did so. Two months after the publication of that story, they had to come out and put this correction saying it was not so. As it turns out, they finally got an actual tape. They listened to the recording and realized those things were not on the tape. Trump did not tell investigators to find the fraud or say he would be a national hero if they did so. All of those things ended up being not true. The Washington Post took this. They didn't actually corroborate the story. They didn't ask for the evidence. They just ran with it. It's become a game of I heard a rumor, and you wonder why so many people are skeptical of these reports. Oh, anonymous anonymous report here. So-and-so said this. All of which, how many of these stories had to be corrected? Or even the ones that are not corrected, but you go back and look, were completely false, exaggerated, or just made up in order to make them look bad. This happened so many times. Just wanted to point that out. Maybe we'll talk about it later. All right. Linda Gordon in the book, The Second Coming to the KKK. Her conversation right after the break on KMLX.